Hello and welcome again to Fat Free Film. I'm your co-host, Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez-Dawson, and we have the pleasure and the honor to be sitting here today with <coughs> Leonard Nimoy, who is an uh, actor, writer, director, producer, singer, photographer, poet, <laughs> painter, <laughs> um, just basically pretty much the, does almost everything in the film business and in the, in the arts. So thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, we'd like to talk a little bit with you about uh, how the how because I know you started acting when you were eight years old, um, and you began directing later on in your career. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I I started acting <clears throat> in neighborhood theater in Boston. Uh, there was a uh, what was known as a community settlement house. Uh, I don't know if they're still referred to as settlement houses these days. It was a, 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 a publicly funded place where kids can go after school and on weekends <clears throat> to sort of stay out of trouble. They had sports programs and science programs, and and they had a wonderful little theater. So I acted in children's plays from the time I was eight until I was a teenager, and then when I was about seventeen, I was cast in a play by Clifford Odets, a play called Awaken Sing. <gasps> Was and Sanford Meisner involved with that? We, he was with the original production. That's right. Wow. Yeah, uh, which was done by the group theater. Uh, this was in 19... My production was in 1948. And uh, very much a play about my own generation. Uh, I was playing a character called Ralphie, who was a 17-year-old kid in a Jewish family in the Bronx, and I was in a Jewish family in Boston, very similar three generations living in one apartment. And, and his struggles were my struggles, his concerns were my concerns. So I, I felt that I had sort of fallen into a state of grace playing my own story on stage and decided I wanted to be an actor, decided I wanted to do this kind of work um, as a career. And I left Boston, came to California to, start, to begin to study acting and to pursue a career. Um, Who did you train with in California? In 1958, <clears throat> I began studying at, at the Pasadena Playhouse in 1949. They had a school of the theater at that time. They were known as the, the State School of the Theater. Uh, however, they were not in a very good state. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were still, they were, they were sort of riding on an old reputation that, they had, that, that had been developed in, in the 30s and early 40s. But by the late 40s, they were in bad shape. And I only stayed about six months and, and realized that I, I wasn't really getting enough out of it to, to make it worthwhile staying there, so I left. I went back to studying seriously in 1958 with a, with a, a teacher named Jeff Corey, who was uh, originally a, a very successful actor who'd been blacklisted uh, in the McCarthy period and became a teacher to support himself and his family became known as, I think, the best coach teacher in Los Angeles. Had a, a lot of very fine students and a lot of very exciting classes. So I studied with him for about two years. And then I, um, and then I taught my own classes for about three years after that. But I had done, in the meantime, I had done some directing. I was, I was away in the Army for two years, um, stationed in Atlanta, Georgia, <clears throat> and while I was there, um, I became involved with the Atlanta Theater Guild, and I directed a couple of productions for them 
including a production of Streetcar Named Desire, which I directed and in which I played Stanley Kowalski. Oh, you directed and acted. Yeah. What was that like, directing a play and also acting in it? Um, I'd rather not. I'd rather, I'd rather focus on uh, one or the other. And, uh, but they, there simply was, it was a situation where they offered me carte blanche to do whatever you want, sort of, and, and uh, I wanted to do this, this play, and I wanted to play the role, so I decided to take it on. And I, I guess I was okay at it. I did okay. Um, I had a natural sense of how things should work on a stage and how the actors should function, and, and I think I, I think I, I did okay. In, in films, it's an entirely different story. I was going to ask you that. Do you feel that in films it's even, uh, do you feel that you should be able to act and direct, or do you advise against it? I'm not, I'm not sure about the word should. Uh, Clint Eastwood has done it extremely successfully. And, and, so has, uh, and so has Woody Allen in his own films. Uh, those are the, the two best examples that come to mind. I think particularly Eastwood, because Eastwood often takes on very ambitious projects, which he directs and acts in. And I admire that. I admire the stamina of it. It takes an enormous stamina to do the job. And um, if you know your persona and your character really well, as Eastwood does, that makes it easier. In my case, when I started directing films, uh, which was never my intention, by the way, I sort of backed into it, um, I, I was doing Spock in Star Trek movies. And I had the additional burden of a two-hour makeup job. I'd have to sit in the chair for two hours in the morning before the director had to go to work. So if, the, if, if I had to go to work at 7 a.m. as a director, I had to be there in the chair at 5 a.m. to get my makeup on. And, and even during that time, between 5 and 7, there would be people coming into the makeup department saying, how do you want to do this and how do you want to do that? And can you come out to the stage for five minutes and show us where you want this or that put? You know, it's, it's a heavy load. Um, I was much more comfortable, for example, directing Three Men and a Baby, where I didn't have to be concerned about acting in it or, or getting makeup on. Um, but for a long time, I resisted directing. People would say to me, you should be directing, and I, I kind of took it as an insult on my acting. <laughs> I think a lot of actors feel that way. That's something that I've struggled with also, and I, I think it's really changing for one thing, and I think, at least for female actors, um, it's kind of a critical step to take. If you have the capacity to do other things, yeah. you need to develop them because the business is unforgiving, is ageist, um, you might find yourself successful in your 20s and 30s and then suddenly wake up and have absolutely no work to do. So I think that actors generally make good directors and they should not look at it as if they're, a f that they're failing as an actor if they get to direct. Mm -hmm. And when you say backed into it, what do you mean by you backed into it? Well, uh, I, had, I had done a little bit of directing. I was asked by a friend who was producing television episodes to, to direct an episode of a TV show that, that, uh, that he was producing, and I, I, didn't, I did that. I was asked to, uh, I, wanted, I wanted to explore it. I was curious about it. I was asked to act in an episode of T.J. Hooker with Bill Shatner, <laughs> and I, I said, I will, I will come and do that if you'll let me direct an episode, because uh, I wanted to explore that as kind of a, uh, an action show to see what that felt like. So I did that. And then um, when, uh, at the end of the second Star Trek movie, Star Trek II, my Spock character died, supposedly, 
but there was a teaser at the end which suggested that he might come back, and sure enough, when they were preparing Star Trek Three, they called me, and I went for a meeting, they asked me what, what, I, would, what I would like to be involved in making Star Trek Three, and uh, I had had a conversation with my agent, and I said, I would really like to use this up. They, they want me, they need me in the movie, I'd like to use this opportunity to expand my career. And since they had no other acting work to offer me, no other roles to offer me, the only other thing to ask for was to direct the movie. So I did. I said, with all due respect to the people who've done these before, Robert Wise and, and Nicholas Meyer, I think I know Star Trek as well, if not better than they. I think I can do a decent job directing the movie. Well, one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew, I found myself talking to Michael Eisner and had a couple of meetings, and then I got the job. And then, uh, based on what they saw me do with Star Trek Three, they asked me to direct Star Trek Four, which I did. And then it was Bill Shatner's turn, and I was happy to step aside. I'd done enough of that. But then there, uh, Eisner and Katzenberg went to Disney from Paramount, and they asked me to direct Three Men and a Baby. Wow. So suddenly I had a couple of big hits in a row. Star Trek Four was a big hit, and Three Men and a Baby was a big hit, and suddenly I was, I was a sought-after director. But, um, and I was happy to do it, but, but after, I think I directed six films, and I'd had enough, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Why? My life had changed, my needs had changed, my interests had changed. Um, I was extremely happy in a new personal life, and um, extremely reticent to give up all that personal time, to go away for weeks and months at a time to locations. And, uh, and be away from the things that I, place that I really wanted to be and the people that I wanted to be with. And I didn't need the money. I was financially f settled for the rest of my life. So, and I, and I certainly had had a tremendous amount of, of um, creative satisfaction over 50 years of acting and directing and uh, acted all over the world and including Broadway a couple of times and even directed on Broadway once in a, a terrible failure, but I was there. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was the play? I did a play, I directed a play called The Apple Doesn't Fall. It was a supposed comedy, which turned out not to be funny enough. <laughs> and, uh, I wanted to ask you about comedies. With Three Men and a Baby, when that came out, and people were, like Leonard Nimoy directed this, yeah. some people were, were, well, it's a comedy. How, how did he direct a comedy? I didn't think he had you know, comedy yeah. in him. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's because of the, the character that you played on sure. Star Trek. Sure. Um, was it any different directing a comedy? And, and what, you know, what are the challenges? Well, I happen to think I have a pretty good sense of humor, uh, and, and the Spock character had a very strong element of humor, uh, and Star Trek IV had some very strong humor. As a matter of fact, um, when we developed four, Star Trek IV, I said going in, this film has got to lighten up. We have been dealing with death and destruction in these Star Trek movies, and we've had enough of that. Uh, Spock died, and Kirk's son died, and the Klingons were all being killed, and I mean, I've said enough. Let's let's find a way to have some a little bit lighter tone, in spite of the fact that Earth is being jeopardized in the movie. We've got to find some humor, and and uh, and I think we did. Um, so, and I had done comedy on stage, a lot of comedy on stage, all around the country. I had done uh, um, a number of plays, which were flat-out comedies. Um, Visit to a Small Planet and The Four Poster and, and uh, a whole list of 
comedies that I so I had a lot of comedy experience. And I think that that's one of the things that makes um, you a, a great actor is that you have that sense of, of humor, and yeah. I think it comes through in a lot of the things that you do. And I think also with William Shatner, yeah. you, um, both of you guys seem to be really um, willing to laugh at yourselves or, or you know, mm-hmm. um, bring your sense of humor right there, regardless of what the role is. And I think that that's a great lesson for people. Um, we were talking to somebody recently. They said that um, independent films or comedies don't, don't do so well because they're, they're, you know, they're not very good at comedies in uh, independent films. Yeah. And I do think that that's something that, um, that people... Because I think sometimes we get so serious about, oh, I got to make my film, and it's got to, you know, it's got to be this great film, it's got to win awards. Yeah. That sometimes we forget to to just have fun. And, I think you know, you're absolutely wow. right. Let me let me tell you about a film that you may or may not know about that I that I was involved with uh, in the early '60s. In 1960, I acted in a play called Death Watch, not a comedy, <laughs> <laughs> not a comedy. This was a play written by a French playwright named Jean Genet. Oh, the Jean, Jean Genet was a notorious French author criminal. And he had written some very poetic and very beautiful material, including uh, an autobiography called Thieves' Journal, which was banned in the United States. He was writing some very scatological stuff. And all of his materials were banned here. And somehow, somebody got the rights to produce this play in New York. Play, this play called Death Watch. Vic Morrow, who was a friend of mine and a fellow classmate studying with Jeff Corey, went to New York to act in it and secured the West Coast rights for the play, came back out here wanting to direct it. And he cast me and Paul Mazursky and an actor named Michael Forrest. It was a three-character piece, four-character piece, but three men in a prison cell. Very grim piece about the hierarchy of crime within the prison. There wasn't a laugh in the piece. If there was any laughter, it was, it was a mistake, believe me. Was, there was no intentional laughter. And the play, because Genet was so uh, buzzed about in town and had never been produced out here, the industry people flocked to see it. They wanted to know what Genet and his material was all about. And it cracked open my career. I began working steadily as an actor after that play was produced. Then in a conversation with Vic a couple of years later, we talked about the possibility of making it into a film because we felt we had done something meaningful and would like to memorialize it. So with a friend named Chase Mishkin, who is the lady who wants to take Jean Marie's play to Broadway, by the way, Mm. uh, I co-produced the film and Vic directed and, and we had the original cast come back and act in it. Uh, and, uh, we, we made this film for around, I think $40,000 in cash on a budget of about 68000 The rest was all deferred. And um, it was a grim, dark movie. I spent a lot of time uh, securing the rights. Genet was in France. His agent was in London. Uh, money was a problem. We, you know, we weren't doing that well. Um, but I learned something about making an independent film. We've made this little independent film. We went to John Cassavetes for advice. We went, went to the, the, the people who were making independent films at the time for advice. We were raising money in, in clusters of $300, $600, $1,200. You could buy a point or two in this movie. Um, distribution was a problem. We got to open in the village in New York on Bleak, at the Bleecker Street Cinema. 
lost money. We opened in San Francisco and made a little money in San Francisco. Were you four-walling it? I mean, you were renting out the theater yourselves? We were doing both, four-walling it and, and partnering with theater owners. Um, we got a little money for a 16-millimeter release. And, uh, and actually, fairly recently, uh, got a little bit more money. And this was uh, 20 years after we made the film. film. Films have a long shelf life. 20 years after we made the film, Along came a company that was starting a gay channel, and there was a lot of homosexuality in this movie. So they bought the film for the gay channel and, and gave us some money. Uh, but I learned, I learned a lot about what it takes to produce a film. And I learned, maybe this is the most important thing I have to say, that when you set out to make an independent film, you can get so caught up in the process of raising the money and the mechanics of bringing together a crew, and what kind of camera we're going to use, and what, or what kind of film, or is it digital, and who's going to cut it, and who's going to, and wh where, where can we shoot it, and how much does it cost to rent a studio, and what about wardrobe, and what about me? You can get so caught up in those elements, the physical elements of filmmaking, that you can lose sight of, of the, the script and the performances. What's it really, all, is it worth all the effort to make this project? And if it isn't, Scrap it and start again. Be sure that you know that the film you're making is worth making because you'll get it made eventually if you really are persistent. The question is when you're done, are you going to be happy with what you did because you accomplished it or because it's a terrific thing to show to audiences? That's the major question. And I found that, that there were times when I, could, I got so caught up in the mechanics of it, in bringing together the crew, and we had to shoot on weekends, and then we'd shut down for a week, we'd shut down for two or three weeks and raise some more money and shoot a little bit more, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and finally, you look at it and say, people don't care how hard you work to raise the money. People don't care how long it took you to decide what camera to use. Or, or how many days you had to shoot it. Exactly. They, or what the schedule was. People don't care about that. They sit down to, to be, have an experience. And either they have an experience or they don't. So you got to be careful that you don't get caught up in the success of getting the film made at the expense of getting a, getting something that people want, making something that people want to see. Do you feel that Death Watch did was not something that people wanted to see? Very tough, very tough film. Not cinematic at all. Not cinematic. It feels like a stage, like like a filmed stage play. Very tough. And we we tried to quote break it open. We did do some exterior work. Uh, we shot some stuff at a, in a prison yard with 100 prisoners at the Nevada State Penitentiary. So in the early part of the film, but then eventually, gradually, we closed in on the play. And we, and we did the play. And it's very tough to sit through this piece of material. And, and not a laugh in sight. You know? I mean, just really grim stuff. So it's a very, it's a very dedicated uh, process and a very authentic process. It's very authentic to the play. But the question is, do people want to see this movie? And I, I think the answer is questionable. Yeah. Do you feel that um, the movies that are popular are reflective of what's going on in our society today? As opposed, I mean, just if you speak historically about the kind of things that we used to enjoy watching, and the kind of things that we are enjoying now. Wow. Uh, I don't think there's a general answer to the question. I think uh, you have to be very selective about when you talk about this film or that film, and does this film reflect our society, and does that film not? You know, it's, it's, you have to be very selective. I don't think you can make a general statement. Uh, 
Look, there's a giant, giant success that Sasha Baron Cohen has had with the Borat film. Uh, is so uh, is so specific to him and what he does, but it catches something in the public zeitgeist about what people are feeling or experiencing or thinking, or what they what they're uh, what they're entertained by, and uh, uh, he's he's just a, I think he's done a brilliant job of of setting comedy in a new way, uh, and and people want to see it and people talk about it. Uh, Blood Diamond is an entirely other experience, other kind of experience. Do people want to see it? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm not an authority on, on what people should make, except that I think you have to be very careful to try to make something that you really believe in and, and have a passion about rather than, just, rather than aim for success. You know, aiming for success can be an empty process. Aiming to entertain can be meaningful. Aiming to, to uh, give people an interesting experience can be meaningful. But aiming, trying to pinhole, trying to pinpoint for success can be dangerous. Well, I guess one of the things that we've been talking about a lot on the show is how um, it seems to me that in the past, say, decade, the films that are being made by the studios, the budgets are so large yeah. um, that they it really sort of dictates the um, the element of the mass marketing of art to the degree that you can't even move forward on a project that's going to cost $200 million until you have a very strong statistical backing for the fact that it's going to make its money back. Yeah. And so it does sort of squeeze what, what the studios at least are bankrolling. I mean, these tent, what they call the tentpole pictures. Yeah. Well, you're right. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I've been out of the business as far as filmmaking is concerned for for a number of years now. Uh, but I'm I'm reading about films being budgeted at two hundred million dollars. I just read about one this morning. James Cameron has one being set up at two hundred million. I'm also hearing about studios canceling films with two hundred million dollar budgets because they feel that they're getting too expensive, and some of the actors are are, are getting too expensive. Um, to put this in a context having to do with my experiences, as I told you, the first film that I, that I was involved in making, Death Watch, which spent about $40,000. Uh, the films that I made uh, in the 80s for Paramount and Disney were budgeted between 13 and 25 million. And Three Men and a Baby was around 13 or 14 million and grossed about 180. Uh, Star Trek IV, which was the second Star Trek film I made, was budgeted, I think, at around 22 or 24 million and did about 120. Uh, I, and, and today, there are actors who are drawing as much money out of the budget or more than what I was spending on an entire movie, a single actor or actress. So I don't, I don't have a frame of reference um, that's helpful in dealing with these issues, except, as you say, that there has to be a tremendous amount of, of number crunching somewhere in our office where people say, well, okay, it makes sense for us to invest this $200 million. My sympathy goes out to the filmmaker who's trying to make something meaningful for, uh, for something less than these crazy extravagant budgets. I, 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 don't, I can't relate to it. Well, that's, that's part of why um, this whole digital revolution is yeah. so important to the art form yeah. because without it m most 
young, uh, young or, or whatever age, new filmmakers won't be able to get anything made at all. Right, right. And the other positive thing is that there are so many new outlets mm -hmm. for the product, either <laughs> You know, there's cable, there are so many stations on TV that, that you could sell your movie to. There's a lot of deals you can make overseas, and then there's also this new internet potential. Yeah. You can also just sell your movies right off your own website mm -hmm. if you have some way of creating an audience for yourself. Well, this is, this is big stuff. When, when we made Death Watch, in order to show the film, someone, usually me, had to carry these large, heavy cans. I think the film must have weighed about 50 pounds on the reels. Had to carry these large, heavy cans with reels of film inside, rent a, a projection house, which became costly, and, and get people to come to that place to sit down for the hour and a half or two hours to watch your movie. It was not easy and it was not fun. Uh, today, uh, the means of showing the work is so much more accessible and, 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 uh, uh, and therefore, uh, I, I have to use the word easier for filmmakers to, to get people to look at what they've done, at least a sample of it. I mean, you can sit down, you can say, just sit at your computer and go to such and such and click on so and so and take a look at this three minute piece and, and they can sample your film. Uh, believe me, it's come a long, long way for filmmakers. So I envy the f people making films today, I envy that because I was the one who, who flew on airplanes and carried this stuff from the airport to the, in a taxi to a screening room <laughs> and hoping people showed up in the snow and rain and whatever in New York and trying to get an audience for the movie. And, um, and, and I, have a, I have a website for my photography and I know how easy it is when people say, what's your work look like? I say, go to my website, LeonardNemoyPhotography.com, click on photography and you'll see my work, period. I don't have to take them someplace or send them something. It's bang, bang, people, I mean, we're in a different age. And I think it's very exciting for filmmakers to be able to do that. So tell us a little bit about your photography and what, and, and this is sort of where you're moving creatively at this point. I have been for some years now, yeah. Photography has always been a passion. I started working with, with cameras and film when I was about 13. I still have an image that I that I shot with the family camera, which was a Kodak bellows camera. You opened it up and and, and pulled out the bellows, and and um, I built my first enlarger uh, using scraps of wood and a, and a, uh, a metal uh, uh, lunchbox for a light housing, and and uh, and uh, many times considered changing careers, going into into uh, camera work, photography work. Worked in labs, uh, worked in photo studios, uh, shot pictures of, of children to make a living uh, to support a family. Uh, in 1970, I studied heavily, uh, intensely at UCLA because I was considering changing careers. After I'd done three seasons of Star Trek and two of Mission Impossible, I thought, well, maybe I've had enough of that. Maybe I want to try the, uh, the um, photography. But following commercial photographers around, I realized that I didn't want to do that. I want to do fine art photography, subject matter that I choose in the way that I want to do it. I don't want to be doing photography on demand. Now, in the last 10, 12 years, that's what I've done, is do my own photography. And I've had shows around the country, and, and uh, my work is in several museums. And that's, that's what I do. I do it because I love it, be, among other things, because first, it's a form of expression. 
and but terribly important to me. I can do it whenever and wherever I choose. So I don't, it doesn't take me away from the places that I want to be or the people that I want to be with. Now, what do you think about that, about the idea? A lot of times when people, I, I don't know what it was like when you came to Hollywood, but you came from a family that didn't have any actors in it, no, I assume, right. and maybe you didn't have that in your environment. Right. Um, but how did you, as a young person, know that, hey, I want to be an actor and I want to come to Los Angeles? And then how did you um, make that happen? Because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that have that same kind yeah. of desire. You know? Well, as I said before, I had this uh, intense identification with this character in the, in the play, in Awake and Sing, the yeah. Clifford O'Dis play. And uh, I really felt like I, had, like I had found a calling. I remember distinctly, and I had done a number of other plays around that period, but this particular character in this play really spoke to me. And I remember the morning after we gave our last performance, I walked from our apartment to the theater, which was only about four or five blocks away, to pick up my wardrobe, my clothes. And walking back from the theater to my home, carrying the clothes, I thought I'm walking in the wrong direction. Mm. I really had that sense that I'm walking away from where I should be walking to. I should be walking to the theater, not to the apartment. And... Uh, I used to get a magazine called Theater Arts, and Theater Arts always carried uh, advertisements for the Pasadena Playhouse. Now, around that time, another Clifford Odets play came through Boston. Uh, Boston used to be a tryout town for Broadway. Plays often stopped in, in Boston before they went to New York. And there was a play called The Big Knife that Clifford Odets had written. And I heard that they were opening and were in town, and a couple of the actors in The Big Knife were actors from the group theater who had actually acted in the original production of Awake and Sing. So I contacted them. I called hotels all around downtown Boston until I found a man named Joe Bromberg, J. Edward Bromberg, who, was, who had, uh, had a good career as, a, as an actor, came out of the group theater. And I told him who I was and that I wanted to be an actor. How should I go about it? And he suggested I go to California study at the Pasadena Playhouse. He said, the, the studios cover those theaters, and you'll be seen and maybe hired and maybe put under contract, and they'll send you to acting classes, and they'll put you in small parts, and you'll build a career. And that's, and, and I took that advice. I could have just as easily have called somebody who said, go to New York, you know. But I happened to get hold of a professional actor who said, go to California, so I did. <laughs> and... Um, and I came out here, and, and uh, I just persisted. I just This was something I had to do. But I always believed that my acting career would be based out, out of theater work. I always believed that. Because I never saw myself as a, as a film commodity, a film leading man. I, I, I would be a character actor. I always knew that. And I felt in order to do that, I had to work in the theater to, to develop my craft and to be perceived as a usable, useful actor in films. And that's exactly the way it happened when I finally did the Death Watch play. That's when my career broke open. Yeah. Now, do you, I want to just ask you about Spock, when you played Spock, and, yeah. and whether um, you felt like that enabled you to do more, or whether it stereotyped you, or what kind of an experience Both. was that? Both. And my typecast, absolutely. Absolutely. So was Clint Eastwood. Yeah. So was John Wayne. So was Gary Cooper. So was um, Cary Grant. Uh, and name actresses. Everybody's. If you're a successful person in films, chances are you're typecast. Chances are, are you're typecast. 
studios and audiences alike are uncomfortable with people who step out of a certain type and change character completely. John Wayne tried it a couple of times and had a disaster in a couple of movies where he tried to be something other than what he played successfully. Uh, I'm not John Wayne, but on the other hand, I found that I was useful portraying a certain kind of person, uh, usually cerebral, usually thoughtful. Uh, I could play attorneys. I could play. I could play uh, advocates of various kinds, uh, uh, teachers, whatever. Um, although, strangely enough, uh, in my earlier years. When I was in my late teens and early 20s, I, I played a lot of gangsters and, and nasty people. You know? <laughs> I was the guy who beat up the, the good guys, or tried to. Uh, but gradually, I grew into this kind of um, professorial kind of um, casting. So for me, typecasting um, was not really a burden. It, it, it was, became useful because when you're typecast, it means in the film industry, it means that studios know how to use you. If they don't know how to use you, you've got a problem. When they know how to use you, chances are you can find a niche for yourself under that heading. He or she is this kind of a person, and when you have that kind of a role, he or she is useful in that role. As far as career was concerned, after once I did the spot character, I never again had to be concerned about what my next job would be. I always had work available, which was entire I had had 15 years of, of worrying about how I was going to support a family. I always did, had to do other, other work, uh, and finally teaching. But before that, I was driving taxis. I was working in pet shops. I was delivering newspapers. I was, I was selling life insurance. I was doing all kinds of things to, to supplement the, uh, the acting income. But after Spock, I never had to do anything that I didn't want to do. Uh, I had work available to me in theater and films and television, always, as much as I could handle, in the United States and in other countries. Uh, I had a great ride. I had a great ride. I have no complaints about that. Yeah. I also I wonder about the show In Search Of. That was yeah. a big, very popular show with, with me when I was younger. Yeah. Um, does, is that was that something that you were interested in the uh, the different kinds well, of that's a good example of how the typecasting worked for me. Uh, I think they felt that I would be useful in that kind of a setting, and I think it worked very well. We did seven years. That was a great show. I've been in search of. Uh, I was always interested in the material. Sure, the paranormal, um, the archaeological issues. Uh, I was more interested in. in in the paranormal and in, in ESP and so forth, then I was interested in what we called sticks and bones. You know. <laughs> but but uh, it was a great job, among other things, because they would come to me and put me to work wherever I was. We would find a way to get my pieces done. It always seemed as if I was on these various locations, but I was very rarely on the real location. 90% of the work was done wherever I happened to be, in Los Angeles or New York, or they would come to me with the camera crew. We could do as many as five different shows in the city of New York in one day, uh, at least the on-camera stuff, and then I'd go to the studio the next day and do all the narration. But they would work to my schedule, so wherever I was, they came and we did the shows. And... and uh, they were fun, and they were in, in sometimes informative and always intriguing. Mm -hmm. They were very well produced by Alan Lansberg and his people. 
And I consider it a very lucky, uh, a lucky way to work because I was interested in the material and they could, I could do it on my own time and on my own schedule. And as an artist, you do so many different things. Do you think that people um, should in, uh, do a, many different things, or do you think they should focus on one and then move to another? And then <laughs> I'm, I'm always um, if you're a creative person, which I guess I am, uh, you're always looking for ways to express yourself, to express your creativity. You get an idea and you want to execute it. So now I execute my ideas through through photography. Uh, for a while, I did a lot of other things. I wrote poetry, I, uh, I did some photographs, and I did musicals, I, I toured as Sherlock Holmes in the National, the Royal Shakespeare production all around the country. I did a one-man show about Vincent van Gogh, which I did 150 performances. I wrote it and directed it myself. Did 150 performances all around the country and then eventually taped it for, uh, for uh, A&E Network. Uh, I just, I'm like a kid in a candy store when it comes to doing things. Doesn't mean that everybody has to do what I do or did, you know. Some people are totally happy just being an actor or just being a director or just being a poet or just being a photographer. I'm, I tend to be a little greedy. <laughs> I, I try a lot of different things, you know. I don't necessarily succeed at all of them all the time, but that's okay. I, I, get, I get my kicks at doing what I, what I do. I noticed that also that your house is very beautiful. Did you design the decor? The taste is my wife and a designer friend of hers who she has used to do the decor. Uh, what about the art? We collect contemporary art, and she's the driving force. My wife is the driving force. I, uh, I love what we have, and we usually agree totally on anything that we buy. But most of it comes because it's something that she sees or thinks we should, we should look into. And then she'll introduce me to it. And I will either say I get it or I don't. And if I don't get it, chances are we don't buy it. But uh, in most cases, if it's something that she really advocates, I get it. I understand why we should, we should own that piece. And we're very pleased with our collection. The stuff feeds us. It's living the stuff on the walls and on, on the floors and what have you. It's, it's, it's alive. It's not dead art. It's, a, it's living art. It's, yeah. it's alive. It, it, it has energy, and it feeds us constantly. And if a piece of art stops feeding us, chances are it's time to let it go. I like that. I think that uh, we're going to end at this point. And uh, I want to thank Leonard for taking the time here with us. We're at the, the section here called Film Bites, which are just little pieces of advice for people out there. I'm going to just um, kind of steal what Leonard just said about uh, the environment. As an artist, it's, I think it's a really good idea to nurture yourself by surrounding yourself with an environment that is stimulating, alive, like he said, um, and also something that, that makes you feel good and makes you inspired to, uh, to create. And I'm also going to ex um, steal something from what Leonard said that, that hit me because as an actress, um, and especially as a Latina, half-Latina actress, I fight stereotyping so hard when I probably should have embraced it. I probably would 
because I I didn't have the idea that you said, which is that you're useful when they can categorize you. I think, and up until now, now I don't think that anymore after today, (laughs) but I used to think that being an actor meant completely changing your beingness and who you are in each role, so you can't even tell that it's the same person. And that has really hurt my career because nobody knows that I'm really this, you know, nobody can glom everything together and say, oh, that's her. So I think that's a very good point for actors is don't fight your casting. Find your casting, and if there's a niche that you can fit into, um, once once you've broken it open, as Leonard says, then you will have the freedom to do whatever you want. But up until then, fighting it is not a good plan. If you if you are uh, if you are able to categorize yourself as an ins- as an instrument that plays in an orchestra, you ask yourself, what instrument am I? Am I a violin? Am I a tuba? Am I a drum? Am I a trumpet? Am I a flute? And you decide that you're a flute. Why go about complaining that you're not getting parts to, for the to play the drum? <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't want to play the flute. I want to play the drum. No, but you're a great flute player. You are wonderful as a flute player. So uh, that's the general idea. Um, we, we, we all are instruments, and our instrument is what we're born with and what, and what evolves as we grow up. And it's, it's just, I think it's a loss to... Uh, yes, within, within the range of what you're capable of doing, we all want to be chameleons. We want to move to, to, to different characters and not be playing the same character over and over again. Absolutely. <clears throat> I agree with that. But, but if you understand that even within your own range, there are wonderful opportunities to play different kinds of people who are essentially based on who and what you are, <clears throat> I think you, you can benefit from that. And if you were to ask me about filmmaking, uh, I always remember a piece of advice that somebody gave me when I was struggling with the raising the money and bringing together the crew and what have you. And somebody said to me, making a film is like eating an elephant. You can't do it all in one day. But if you take a bite out of the elephant every day, eventually the elephant will disappear. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll be very, very fat. All right, great. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much, you Leonard. So much, You're Leonard. welcome. And um, we'll see you guys next time on Fat Free Film. If you have any questions for us, um, email us at joel at fatfreefilm.com. <laughs>